Bloomberg Audio Studios. Podcasts, radio, news. I want to win with people that know how to lose. I can, you know, sip champagne or buy the glass, whatever it is, when you're winning. Like, I know what that feeling's like. But when things are not going well, when you're losing, when you have a losing streak, it can be a year, it can be a few years. And who are those people that are in that process, right? What's their mentality? I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. I am fired up, Jason. I mean, this is our first episode and is a good one. But we've been talking about this for a while now, almost a couple years. I mean, what I think we're trying to do with this show is have conversations, candidly, that aren't being had anywhere else. I mean, there's a lot of great stuff out there, but I don't think there's the perspective of what is really in people's minds when they're making big decisions around their businesses. Yeah. And Jason, I think you and I have a lot in common, but one of them is that we're both have an incredible thirst for information and we're both very inquisitive. And I think a lot of people out there are a lot like us. You have a lot of questions about my sports career and I have a lot of questions to you about your incredible career. And I think the combination of both of us is what the deal is all about. Well, and also I think we've seen our worlds collide in mm-hmm. a lot of ways, right? And and one of the things that I think is unique is you look around the owner's table, mm-hmm. a lot of guys, men and women, who came out of private equity, who mm-hmm. came out of real estate. You know, they had these huge careers there and now they've turned their attention to sports. And by the same token, what was once pretty rare, meaning, you know, you, Magic Johnson, Michael Strahan, who's going to be a guest uh, coming up on this season. Now that's assumed. If you're an athlete, you're a business. You're a businessman, you know. And so this notion of athletes knowing from the beginning that they have aspirations, not just on the field, on the court, but, you know, well beyond I think one of the things that also makes this show unique other than, you know, you and I being together is this concept that the deal is our North Star, you know, that we are talking to people about their business. We're talking about their lives. We're talking about their careers on the field. But what happens off the field, these key decisions they make, the key hires they make, the risks that they take. I don't think they've told a lot of these stories before. And I think there's a lot to be learned by not just what you know, but what went into those big decisions. Yeah, I've learned, Jason, so much from you in a short time. And I want the audience to be able to learn from you and your experiences. And I think one of the things I think about a lot is, you know, knowledge helps you prevent a lot of headaches. Yeah. And knowledge is power. And there's another form to educate and learn, quite frankly, from some of my mistakes, deals are not just home runs. Some are strikeouts. And sometimes the lessons in those strikeouts are most valuable. I see what you did there. It's a baseball metaphor. Okay, <laughs> Can't help myself. <laughs> and Alex, our first guest is a perfect distillation of everything we've just described. Maria Sharapova, you know, someone who I feel like has been in our lives for a long time. You guys have intersected as business people. You also kind of came of age at the same time in terms of the spotlight. What an amazing story. And I was so inspired when we spoke to her, the challenges that she had to overcome. And what a brilliant woman. And the things that she's doing in business today 
are incredible. I think one of the things that you'll find fascinating is her background, her work ethic, and her father, and that relationship, and really developing really thick skin at a global level, I think has set her up beautifully for business. Well, the other interesting thing, too, is that I think we sort of discover in this interview a woman who is, you know, in her mid-30s, you know, very much discovering herself as a business person in this next phase of life. And you've encountered her in that regard. What was your impression coming in? I was wildly impressed. I mean, she is someone who is fierce, humble, ask tons of questions. And if you're an investor or you're a founder of a company, it's disarming. And you want to work with Maria because she is nice. She is a champion. And you have this incredible package of a world-class athlete and potentially a world-class partner, which is what most founders are looking for. Yeah. I mean, she is so quick. You know, that willingness to kind of go there, to be in the moment. I, I want to build one more thing on that, Jason, because I think that's a great point. When she started making fun of me, you know, she's always very serious as I watched in these like big Wimbledon and all this. Yeah. And she was always game face. And when she started ripping on me, I'm like, oh my gosh, I really like this person. I know. I know. It was great. It came out of nowhere. And yet it, as we got to know her more and more through the course of the interview, it's like, oh yeah, this is on brand. Mm -hmm. On this episode of The Deal, Maria Sharapova. All right, so officially introduce yourself. Wow. Yeah. I'm Maria Sharapova. I am a five-time Grand Slam champion, and I am now a mother, an entrepreneur, and just a curious human being. We have so many things that we want to talk to you about, and I read your book, and I, I have to say, like, it really is, like, lodged in me. Like, your story, and I think that's a big compliment. Well, I mean, it, I think it's your willingness to kind of go there, you know, and I think the the sort of rawness and the vulnerability you, you show in, in telling that story. I mean, I do wonder, like, going all the way back, like, when did you know, and you've written about this, like, when mm. did you know that you had something special? I don't think I ever allowed myself to accept or to realize that I, I had something special because the moment that you think you have it down or you know too much or you know everything and you consider yourself the best internally, maybe the outside world can, but internally is, in my opinion, is a time that you have to be very careful about because you start believing in the hype and you start hyping your own self up and then you're living up to these unprecedented expectations and I don't know if they're ever going to be met. Maria, I'm such a big fan of everything you've done off the court, obviously the five grand slams and what you're doing now. It takes so much courage to do that. But going back to the early days, building what Jason just asked, you know, I come from two parents that are immigrants from Dominican Republic, very modest beginnings. And there was always a sense of imposter syndrome. And I think that was my gift and my curse, mm. right? It led me to a great career, but it also led me to a one-year suspension that mm -hmm. was very hard on me. Mm -hmm. Did you ever feel coming up a little bit of an imposter syndrome, or did you feel like you belonged from day one? 
I knew that what I was doing was different to other families, to other children. I knew that I had a different path and I was living almost, I mean, it was a dream, and uh, but I had a very clear vision and so did my mother and my father, my father particularly because he was my coach for many years and it was, you know, his big goal. I was too young to really have those big goals. But as I followed the, this road that he, you know, paved for me, I realized very much that this dream was becoming a reality, that you know, you had a choice to make every single day when you wake up to be the best. And I was given an incredible gift of, you know, having a strong mind of persistence, of focus. And I was talented, but I wasn't like as physically strong as other children. And I loved this idea of being different. And I accepted that I didn't have a typical upbringing, that I was an immigrant, that I came to the United States as a young girl. And I didn't feel like I always belonged, but I found that as a gift. I didn't find that as a disadvantage. So just following up on that, I remember the first time that I traveled to Texas and I was 15 years old and I wore the U.S. uniform representing the U.S. and the U.S. Olympic teams. And I looked around the room and I was a rising junior. Everyone was a rising senior in the summertime. And I said, wait a minute, I'm as good as everybody here. And I'm a year younger. Mm -hmm. I was the only underclassman. That was the first time that I go, I can go big if I really focus. What was that moment for you that you said, I can be something special? So you see, it's funny because you 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 give me that example and that story. And I, there's not one that I particularly look back to because after a victory or after beating someone that was older than I was or a boy that, you know, was stronger and, and you know, perhaps had a, a better talent or was just physically better at the sport, I still knew that I had to wake up and keep doing it tomorrow and prove myself again and go to another tournament over the weekend in the middle of nowhere in the dumps of Florida and figure out a way to win. And so... I think it was just this reality element that kept coming back to me. Like I came from, you know, as you have, from very humble beginnings. And I was never afraid to go back, but I dreamed of the very best. I dreamed of holding the biggest trophy. But I also, in in this other context, if I went back to what I had before, I didn't think badly of it. Like mm. the, the foundation that my parents had built back home in Russia, they were both, you know, my mother was very young. She was still in university, but my, my dad had a decent job. He wasn't making a lot of money in the United States considered no money. But overall, like I had a great environment. I had a healthy environment. I had food on the table. I had great loving parents. And so if those were the conditions that I had to go back to, I was okay with and, and perhaps that is what gave me the confidence to just keep going yeah. and just keep striving for better and better. And hey, if the top didn't happen to what I envisioned, then it was okay to go back to those humble beginnings. So you've mentioned your parents a, a couple of times. And you know, when we think about the, the concept of the deal, the, the sort of unifying principle of all that, your earliest partnership is your dad. I mean, yeah. in terms of like, you but it, it wasn't a choice. It wasn't a choice, right? Exactly. <laughs> and, and I'm okay with it. And you're okay I with it. I was that. lucky. And <laughs> so as you come of age, I mean, even as you get to be, you know, even 10, 11 years old, 11 years old, you know, you sign with Nike, I believe mm -hmm. you are at a very young age in a business partnership yeah. with your dad. How did that feel? And what were the, sort of the undercurrents of that? Yeah, well, I'm an only child and was and still am. And so I, I built this very strong bond with my parents. They were both very young. My father, you know, enjoyed sport. He loved sport. He played hockey. That was a big sport in Russia. He thought he was some tremendous athlete. I kept telling him he wasn't that good. And <laughs> I still do till this day. My mother would take me to the ballet no matter what city I was in and just 
helped me grow everything else but sport. And so they had these very different gifts that they helped, you know, instill in me and and shape me in many ways. And I think that grounding element of those partnerships, like I would go to the tennis court and I would be around my dad. And and of course, I'd negotiate with him whether I was there, you know, I'd start my practice with serving for 45 minutes or I'd end it like I had a preference and he had his preference. And, you know, it'd be a little bit of a negotiation no matter how young I was. Like right. I'd find my way to, you know, give an opinion and then I'd come home and, you know, my mom had my schoolwork in front of me and she made sure that I ate the right things and that I stretched, you know, before I went to sleep because she thought that would help me grow. She was right because I'm much taller than my parents. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. You were hanging from a bar, though. I was hanging like, from a bar yeah. and then I had to stretch right before going to sleep because she said when you go to sleep, that's when you elongate. That's when your body recovers and it needs to be nice and loose. So here well, we are. It, and the biggest business decision your parents make is for you and your dad to come to the United States. I mm-hmm. mean, we talk a lot about risk when it comes to business. That's a huge bet. Huge risk. On you at age five, you know, you get a little bit of encouragement from Martina Navratilova. You know, and you've talked about how, you know, there are these key moments that you look back on that are clearly catalytic mm. in your progression and, and in your success. Yeah. But that is a massive risk that you must look back on and think, wow. Yeah. My father and I were <laughs> breaking rules on the public tennis courts from the first day we arrived in Miami. I remember... We arrived. Someone was supposed to meet us. They didn't. We happened to stay with a family sharing a hotel room. And the next morning, my dad said, let's wake up. we got to go find a, a court, a tennis court. And uh, we just happened to go around Collins Avenue and then found some private court that he jumped the fence on. And here we were, opened the gate from the back practicing. So those are like the recollections of arriving to the United States of America, finding your way, finding your path. And there are many times where it could have gone wrong. But your determination and, you know, outside voices, and there are many people along those paths that that help shape, you know, your your future. So Maria, when I hear you talk about your father, I, I can't help to think about, you know, my dad leaving my family, my mother, my brother, my sister, and kind of left the four of us behind. And my mother went on to take two jobs. And I always thought, I think about the gift of your father and the curse of my father leaving us. Mm-hmm. There's both sides, right? Part of him leaving was I had nobody to kick me in the butt. Mm -hmm. I had to do it myself. And I knew early on that I had to be the provider for my family, probably when I was around 11 or 12. I hear all the good. Any challenges of having that first partnership be Mm -hmm. with your father? You can't just fire your father. He can't fire you. I mean, it's blood. Yeah. Any challenges along the way? Tennis-wise, I have to give him so much credit. I mean, there are many... In his position, he was in his early 30s with $700 in in his uh, back pocket of his Mm. Levi's. He was trying to find any kind of job that would help support, you know, string my next racket for my next tournament. So I don't, you know, the greatest gift that he gave me was acknowledging that at some point he will have to step back. And for a father in sport, particularly in tennis, as a father of of a girl that's won Grand Slams with him, is a very tough acceptance to have. I did that after my third Grand Slam at the Australian Open. I think he knew it was coming because I I wanted to do it with him and I wanted to do it on my own. I wanted to have that independency and, and it was more for me than anything else. It was not about money. It was not about victories. It was just this little, little bird, this little instinct of mine that said, you know what, this is time. I won my 
third Grand Slam at the Australian Open, and I, I dropped now, it. Now I'm scared for you, Maria. Is, is that conversation happen on text, on phone, in person? <laughs> oh, that's where I was getting Alone? to. Alone? Okay, <laughs> now I'm excited to yeah. hear this. this nervous. I, I drafted a really good email. I just thought I was going to do this much better on email and craft my thoughts better, and, and I did. And I couldn't look at him in the face while saying that. But I also knew that he knew it was coming. He just didn't think it was going to happen after I just won my third Grand Slam. Yeah. Yeah. It's a tough one. But you have to like rip that Band-Aid. As someone that was in my 20s, I was ready. It had been a partnership for, you know, over 20 years and it was time to do it on my own. And to do it after a third Grand Slam, yeah. so much better than after a terrible defeat, right? Yeah, which so. is what happens most right. of the time. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, and and it was interesting too because you you essentially kind of turned his own logic on him, right? Because mm. he had been pretty robust in yeah. in terms of like turning over your team pretty consistently, yeah. you know, firing coaches along the way just to make sure you kept it fresh. Is that yeah, fair? Yeah, I mean, I, n I never really fired him. He was still very much involved. Yeah, right. I guess the only thing that and and when you say fire, like you evolve right sure. and and that's one of the the hardest the challenges that i find now is like what you needed two three years ago perhaps is not what you need right. for the future and like how do you make that change and acknowledge that this person was right for you at this time but is no longer right for you and and for your own future and perhaps not for theirs and that conversation is one of the most difficult ones that you have in business because team is everything. And if you don't see and feel that your team is moving with you toward that one direction and the fact that he just was able to step back and yeah. say, hey, you do this. I mean, he was still very much involved. He'd call all the coaches and speak to them after right. matches. He's always the first person I call. As It wasn't like I went to my coach. I'd call my dad. Yeah, right, <laughs> you right. Know? You have that partnership and relationship. He knows you better than anyone. And I, and I yeah. respected that. And I always respected his opinion. So speaking of building your team, I mean, one of the catalytic moments clearly too is IMG because that yeah. sets you, it feels like on a completely new path or, yeah. or it sort of helps set the direction. Yeah. My father and I arrived uh, to the IMG Academy on a Greyhound bus in the middle of the night. We didn't know if it was open or not, but it was the only time that the bus came to Bradenton, Florida. And we knocked on the door. The receptionist said, you're crazy. Come back at 6 a.m. when our front office opens. Um, so we went to a motel, came back in the morning, and they put me in. And my, my father said, we don't have a reservation. I just brought my, my daughter from Russia, and she's talented, and I'd like for her to practice here. And I'm sure they looked at him with eyes wide open and said, this guy's nuts. And so let's let's bring them in for the day and then try to get rid of them later. They put me in a group and the coach that was running the group said, hey, called Nick Boletari right away. I went to see Nick within hours and Nick called IMG and that's how it spiraled. Wow. Within 24 hours. And how old were you then? I was seven, six and a half. Right. And then it, I mean, it takes a couple twists and turns though, because oh, you end up at a different yeah. academy because yeah. Boletari is like, this isn't working. Well, after, Boletari yeah. was a, it was a sports factory, right? Like if you want individual training where you come in and there's one person looking after you for six hours a day, that's most likely not going to happen. But it was also a time where we needed investment. We needed money in order to go and, and train. I mean, you know it. Tennis is a very expensive sport. You need to invest so much capital um, and with absolutely no guarantees. And so IMG put the first check in. And I think that was the last time that I like felt really awful about owing money to someone. 
Like so I've how never. How does that work? Explain that. I've never heard that. So IMG invest in you. How do they get the return on their capital? So once you make a little bit of cash, then you return with a certain interest. And I hated that feeling. I mean, the really? feeling of yes. Why, why do you think that is? I just even now, like anytime I'm in business and and I do deals or even buying a house, like the idea of borrowing someone's money and then owing it to them is like, I don't know if it's because of the past and that I needed that money in order to survive in, in, in the sport. It like left a really like, <laughs> I don't know, this feeling of I never want to be in that position. Wow. Yeah. When we come back, we discuss Maria's signing with Nike her first Grand Slam win at Wimbledon, and the highs and lows of what came after. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I can't get too far along. I, I want to get to sort of your success on, on the court in a second, but... From a business perspective, every athlete's dream or many athletes' dream is to sign with Nike. You do that at 11? Are you conscious of that? I really, it wasn't like a big deal to me because I didn't recognize what that even means. To me, that meant that I could have free tennis skirts. Right. And that was fantastic. (laughs) During the time of One Woman, I was on a very small, mediocre Nike contract as a teenager. And after I won, they very sweetly flew us up to Portland and gave us the whole, you know, shebang experience. That was the moment, yeah, where I realized that, okay, I had done something special. Well, let's talk about that because winning Wimbledon the first time, I, I think it's safe to say, literally changes everything. I mean, it changes your Nike deal. It also brings Motorola in Tell us about that. The business of Maria Sharapova totally changes. When you frame it that way, I'm like thinking, wow, that is so big. But like when you're (laughs) a 17-year-old girl, you don't look at it that way. Because if you think that, wow, everything now has changed, how do you wake up at 6 a.m., put on your training gear when it's like freezing outside and go and hit 100 serves with a cold shoulder? Where is the motivation going to come from? So if I can be honest, I never allowed myself to feel that change or that shift has happened mm-hmm. because you constantly have to find those moments of inspiration to keep going. And inspiration to me was not by signing a contract with Motorola or getting the new Razer phone, even though that was an incredible brand. It was the fact that like now when I went to train in, in Los Angeles, I stayed in a in this hotel room in Hermosa Beach and I got an upgrade. <laughs> yeah. I had a better room and that was exciting. I'm here like freaked out because it's resonating so much. At 17, I was drafted from Miami to the Seattle Mariners, like all the way across the country. I had to kind of bring out the map and go, where exactly is Seattle, right? (laughs) 
but there's a moment when I signed my contract where I saw my mom work so hard that I made a promise that I would buy her a house. I got her a used Mercedes Benz. I remember a 190 and I promised her she'll never work again. And she's 87 to this day and she's never worked a day in her life after my contract. When I bought my black Cherokee, I got to tell you, Jeep Cherokee, it was black with a little gold. That was my flex. And I was 17. And I just felt like the king of the world. Was there ever a little moment where you either got a big check that for a minute you said, okay, I'm going to enjoy this quietly and then I'm going to go back to my serves? Yeah. I took my mom and two girlfriends to the Caribbean on my first ever vacation. Where? I'd never seen to Nevis. And... It was the closest like resort, decent yeah. resort to to Sarasota where I was training. Mm-hmm. And we took five days off and I'd never been on a vacation in my life. And I left there and I thought, wow, the fact that I could fly my mom, two of my girlfriends on a private jet to this place with blue water <laughs> and boogie board all day long, like that was our thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And come home and train the next day is the greatest, most amazing gift. Until this day, like I, that feeling of going away, of disconnecting from the world, of being with my friends and my family and treating them to this amazing experience that incorporates travel and wellness. And so this is just post Wimbledon after that season. I was not taking vacations before that. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Why weren't you? You just couldn't. I didn't know what that meant. I don't think I ever took more than a day or two off. But the the grind of the year, the schedule of playing 17 to 20 tournaments a year, the travel, the mm-hmm. media responsibilities, the brand responsibilities, you need to disconnect from that. So I'm going to bring you back to when you were 17, call it a month before you win at your first Wimbledon. What is a day like for Maria mm-hmm. to give us a taste of your work ethic and your schedule? Yeah. So a month before that Wimbledon was the French Open, and it was actually the first Grand Slam quarterfinal that I'd been in. It was a big event for me. It was a big result for me. People expected good things from me, perhaps not on the clay courts, but it was where I made my mark, where I felt like, wow, okay, I got to the quarterfinal, baby steps, I'm moving in the right direction. And the following week was the the first warm-up tournament in Birmingham in England, and they were showing the final of the French Open. And I, at the time, I was sitting in a hotel room with, with a Russian colleague that was also playing the same tournament. And there were two Russians playing that final in Paris. And I just watching the TV and knowing that there was going to be a Russian woman like holding that trophy, I, I wanted, honestly, I just, I wanted it to be me. Mm-hmm. And I was so upset that it was happening to somebody else. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. And and I remember speaking, you know, about it with her. It was a colleague named Maria as well. And just telling her how this should be us. Like, we should be in the final. Why are the other, these two girls are in the final? So I already had that competitive spirit in me. And I was training for for that Wimbledon victory without even knowing it. Because one of the things that comes through very clearly in, in sort of learning about you is you are a ferocious competitor. I mean, you would set your sights on somebody. I mean, Serena is obviously sort of like the alpha example of this. Do you still have that feeling in, in your mind of being so intent on winning? Yeah, if I competed in the same tournament, no matter if it was a woman or a man winning that tournament and it wasn't me, like I would 
inside, I would feel upset that it wasn't me on the stage. Like I would envision myself being there. And if it didn't happen to be that tournament, like I would genuinely be upset and eager to get out on the practice court, whether it was an hour later or the next morning or like it, it fueled me. Absolutely. So I want to take you back just for a second, because you, you mentioned Motorola or you mentioned sort of that moment of winning and, and that it, it didn't resonate with you as much as a competitor. Mm-hmm. And yet I have to think you look back on that as a business person yeah. and realize that was a massive moment. Massive. I was on center court after that, that win, tried to call my mom. She was on a JetBlue flight on her way to New York to actually meet me because I had some things to do over that weekend. I was late because I happened to be in the final. She watched me win on the television mid-flight. I tried to call her so from center court using it was one of those crap phones. Can't reach her. And then I realized she was on the flight. And then next thing you know, a week later, I have a, a global deal with, with Motorola. And the deal itself wasn't financially heavy. It was actually, it was, I think it was a few hundred grand a year, perhaps more. But it was such a great brand alignment at the time. They were coming out with their Razor phone. Right. I was one of the first few people that ever seen it. I was in all the campaigns with it. And it, it was a smart move by by my team and I because it was taking, you know, it was, it was taking a company that was about to to do a lot of many campaigns around a product that I was involved with. And it got me on billboards in from Tokyo to Seoul to Paris. And it opened up so many more doors than perhaps a deal that was worth a few million a year. And were you and your team conscious of that at the time? That, Absolutely. That, okay. So that that this had sort of a, and, and this is something we've talked about before, yeah. you know, sort of this cultural relevance, right? I mean, it was Absolutely. just like a zeitgeist type of uh, yeah. deal. I don't think, well, I mean, you know better than, than anyone, you don't take deals just for the money. There's, you have to think of the right positioning in your career. Is it the, is it about the team? Is it about the founder? Is it about the product? Is it, how are they helping, you know, your name and your image? Where are they focused on? Is there a market that you're particularly interested in? Like, I love going to to Asia and Japan and China. I loved playing there. I loved my fans there. I had a huge fan base. So, you know, if there was a company that was focused on a particular campaign in that area, then, you know, that that would be something that I'd, I'd be curious about. You know, some are just like, you see it, you hear it, you smell it, you know it's a no-brainer. And yeah. sometimes, you know, Warren Buffett talks about, he knows if he's going to invest in a founder or CEO in the first five minutes. So Motorola is a no-brainer. Do you do, you do that too? Well, I was going to tell you about this one because this guy, <laughs> Siri, our mutual friend. Yes. You know, one of my biggest misses of all time was Uber. And I remember I was living in the West Village and we had just finished playing the Red Sox and we were having dinner at the Waverly. Now it's past midnight and we're having a couple cocktails. And he goes, I have this investment for you I want you to look at. And I only have 250 for you to invest in. I said, great, great. So we walk down the street and he presses a button and he sees the car and the mm-hmm. car's coming. I'm like, okay, that's a great, you're a mentalist. <laughs> Do it again. He goes, okay, I'll erase it. And he does it again. Two minutes, a car pulls up. I goes, okay, I, now I, I want this investment. And my 250, I needed to wire before noon the next day. My business manager was out on the West Coast, out in LA. So timing, I missed it. Is he fired? Uh, no, he's still with me. <laughs> but that 250. That You're 250, loyal. <laughs> the 250, Maria, would have been close to 50 million bucks today. Oh, my. But so, do you think of that? Like, do you think that that was a missed opportunity? Like, do you look back and think that's yeah, a do. regret? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but my point is, and this is my question, sometimes the team, 
the business manager, the lawyers. There's a lot of handlers that we have sometimes around us. Mm -hmm. And I feel like paralysis by analysis, there's sometimes you just got to say, kind of screw it. Mm -hmm. A, have you had misses? And two, do you sometimes say, you know what, guys, team, I appreciate it. There's a Maria's call. I'm going to go for it. I see a lot of deal flow and I see... uh many things that could work well and many things that are not necessarily go well. And sometimes you take chances and, and you bet on it. But there was one deal, uh, actually, Andy Roddick called me up. <laughs> not, not that I want to blame Andy, but he did call me up. He says there is a, it was an app, failed app right now. At the time, it was very similar to what Cameo ended up doing very well. The user face had two different apps, so one for the user and one for the hotels that was offering these services. And I said to the founder, I said, why can't this just be one app for the the people that are providing the service and for the user? And he said, we just can't do that. And I said, well, okay, I still believe in you, but I never, I just, I, I thought that was going to be challenging. And and I actually invested quite a bit into it and it it, it never took off. And that was my first bit of, of technology and this must have been over 10 years ago. Yeah, there are many of them. But but you can say that about so many deals. Like you you think so many of them will work and they're so passionate founders, great backgrounds, you know, they know what they're doing. Here's my money. We have so many people around us that help guide us and help us and whether it's assistants or managers, whether it's a business manager or, you know, in in WME or someone else, but at the end of the day, you control everything. And that's a big lesson that I've learned is like, if you're passionate about something, if you want to get something done, you do it. Don't rely on others. If you need to wire 250 grand somewhere, you call your bank, like, and make sure you have your details. Yeah. <laughs> but you have to, and and that's, that's a very important lesson because there are so many middle men in the system and things get lost. I agree. That was a great lesson. Yeah. And I mean, you have been pretty expressive about this idea of trusting your gut, Mm. which which I would imagine must come from your just athletic back. I mean, because as much as, you know, baseball does rely on obviously individual achievement, ultimately you're a part of a team. You're not a part of it. Mm -hmm. It is you out there. And so you, I, I wonder if that in part comes from, well, it's just me out there. Everybody else is sitting in the stands I have to like I have to be responsible for whatever happens next. Yeah, there's a lot of responsibility on yourself, but and and so much of it is instinctual and you know, you can have all the mechanic coaches and the physios and the fitness trainers, but when you're in the tiebreaker in the third or fifth set, you're not looking back at stats, you're not thinking of the YouTube videos that your coach showed you before the match. You're just, you're relying on your body, on your flow, on your mindset to let you get to that match point and win it. Yeah. So even though I didn't have that team environment, I did have a team that I relied on mm. till the very last second until I walked on the court. And and one of the things I, I miss till this day are those people, you know, that helped me win, that helped me achieve the, the best things. And Yeah. I Maria, I'm going to talk about you to Jason in front of you. So, okay. <laughs> so Jason, I got to tell you and, and our friends at home that we've had a couple calls on businesses that we were looking to invest, her family office and mine, and we had mutual interest and we both passed. But I got to tell you, when you have such huge stars like Maria, a lot of times you expect the Zoom call, maybe for them to come in a little late or maybe to have a couple handlers or team members. 
She was the first one on the Zoom call. She was there by herself. She was taking notes. She was asking the smartest questions. I was blown away. And You're so blown away you didn't call me back for any <laughs> well, other deals. Well, <laughs> Where are those other deals that yeah, you want me to that's look a good at? Point. I owe you. I owe you. <laughs> but, he owes you multiple deals. Yeah, I, do. I know. I do. He was giving me a compliment yeah. and I shut him down. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I think that's where I think when superstars in anything they do, when they're able to pivot, the one thing to be careful for is because you were so successful, things can actually go wrong in business. Yeah. And I thought she was a perfect balance of optimism, but yet, you know, some reservation. And the question that she asked, I was incredibly impressed. And that made me understand a little bit about your greatness over a 30-minute Zoom call. Yeah. Thank you. I'm a products person. Like, I love, like, if someone says, invest in this, like, th there's no reason this is going to fail. I'd be like, send me the product. Here's the address. And don't contact me for four weeks. Mm. I want to live with it. I want to breathe it. I want to try it. I want to wear it. I whatever it is, like... I want it. And I want to give it to my friends and I want them to give me their feedback. I want mm -hmm. to give it to the, my family who have different tastes, who yeah. have different, you know, appreciations and aesthetics. And until they tell me that they like it and they're into it, I won't have a next call with you. One of the things you guys have in common is during your playing days, you're thinking about your business, you're mm -hmm. thinking about your brand increasingly, especially as you go along. And yet at some moment, you're not on the baseball field. You're not on the tennis court anymore. No. What is that moment like when, like, what's the first day like when you wake up after retiring mm. and you sort of have to look at your next life at, yeah, you know, I, age of 30, what? Two, two, three, something like that. I, yeah, I remember the, that day clearly I went skiing. And it was, I was pretty bad at it. I thought I'd have more coordination than I did. <laughs> and then I thought I'd get better at it. And then we're all stuck, stuck at home during COVID and, right. uh, you know, living a very different life for several months. But look, in, in all honesty, it's a big decision when you, you decide for yourself, for your team, for your family, that this is the end. And I was ready. My body was ready. It was challenged for several years. And, and ultimately, I let a little bit of stubbornness get in the way of those last few years. I tried so hard to get my body back, but you can't turn back time, right? Like when something's damaged and something's broken, you have to like admit it, move on. And stubbornness that once propelled me to, to greatness eventually, I think, was getting in the way of of better things. So I was ready to say that I was ready for the next chapter is an understatement. I was ready to have a family. I was ready to be a mom. I was in, in a good place mentally. I had a good outlook on life. But it's not like you just turn the switch and move on. Like everything that you've built, the great thing about moving to the next chapter is that you've built a foundation. Now, maybe it's a completely different world. And I know, you know, we say sport and business. Yes, there's a lot of alignment, but there are many differences. And I couldn't forget the fact that over so many years, I built a phenomenal foundation of strength, of resiliency, of focus, of determination, and all these apply to business. So today, you know, I sit here in this chair and yes, I'm an investor. I'm on several boards, but I also can't take away from the fact that it took me more than 12 years to become great at one thing. Mm. And it takes time to build, you know, strength in another arena. So while I do have the foundation, I'm still growing. I'm still learning. You know, I still want to be better on my way here. I talked to my mom and she said, 
you know, the educator and her, I told her this morning I was going on a podcast. She didn't ask too many questions, but she called me back as I was in the car. And she said, you know, I just want to make sure that you're not just talking about your career, that you have like other things to offer and other things to say. Like, are you reading enough? She, she actually asked me, are you reading enough <laughs> on really? my way here? Yeah, so that I would have other things, you know, to say beyond just sport. I was like, mom, yes, I'm, I'm actually listening to the All In podcast while I'm what? on my way here. Like, <laughs> I'm still curious. Don't worry. So, so yeah. Think, so thinking about that, there's going to be viewers that have watched this, that are founders, that have a business, that their dream would be for Maria to invest in their business. Can you tell us a little bit about how you think about businesses, which sectors, kind of broadly check sizes? How do you think about being yeah. a value-add investor? Yeah. One of my first investments, actually the first investment, was into a sunscreen brand called Supergoop. I was a user myself, founded a Sephora market, I think that was their only distribution at the time. This was 12 years ago. I knocked on the on the door of the founder and I said, I love your product. It's the only one I can wear while I play. It doesn't run in my eyes. It doesn't burn my eyes or sting them. Can I please help you out? I don't know what stage you're at. I don't know how young or old you are, but I love what you're doing. Um, and from what I've read, I love your mission. And that was it. And two years ago, they sold 75% of their stake for close to a billion dollars. So it was my first, it was the first time where I didn't take that paycheck at the beginning. And I said, let me invest. Let me give you my time, my platform, my voice, and help share this message about preventing skin cancer. And that was a successful example. And there's been, you know, several others not so. But the point is, is that it came from loving the product. It came from the mission that the founder had that I resonated with and the fact that I could help it. Like I was realistic that I had the right platform and that I had the right usership in order to help them grow. So I think all that was, it was a good foundation in, in my investment story. And not to say that there's something that I may not be familiar with or that I'm taking a chance on. I, sh I still should take the call. I still should spend time with the founders. But ultimately, I want to have a good feel of what this is, right? I, I want to spend time. I want to have dinner with these people, mm -hmm. right? Like, and I want to win with people that know how to lose. Like, if you're, I can, you know, sip champagne or, or you know, buy the glass, whatever it is, when you're winning, like, I know what that feeling's like, but when things are not going well, when you're losing, when you have a losing streak, can be a year, can be a few years. And who are those people that are in, are in that process, right? What's their mentality? How are they helping bring back, you know, the, the fire and the team and the product and the branding? So I, I want to believe in people that know, that know how to lose and how that will come up and find ways to win. I mean, one of the things that, that I feel like you're spending more and more time thinking about too is this notion of, and, and certainly this is something that will resonate with you, Alex, this notion of high performance, this notion of like working under pressure. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm sitting in between two people who- Who loves like, pressure. Who love pressure. <laughs> I mean, who like, you know, like beyond yeah. thrive on it. How do you translate that though into yeah. a life that doesn't have such clear winning and losing on a like yeah. minute to minute basis? Well, it's it's acceptance that it's not always going to go well. No matter, you might have the best intentions, you might have the strongest preparation, the strongest mindset, the best team. I always say you have to be realistic. You can be confident, you can be underplaying your results, but you you still have to go out and show up. And sometimes it's things are out of your control. 
people say certain things, you don't like it, go home, do your job, keep working, you'll get the results. So acceptance is one of them. Work ethic. I mean, work ethic from a young age, understanding that nothing comes easy. You know, we both come from humble backgrounds. And when you know what that feels like, I mean, I'm not a big spender. I take like I know what's in my bank. As star athletes, we go through these like moments of you know, fame and spending, and you kind of lose track of what you have. I thankfully didn't go in that direction. I was very, you know, had a purpose and how I spent what I spent. Like, I, I counted like little coins when I was young, and I, yeah. I would still count them. If now we have to do those cyber coins, <laughs> <laughs> turning it on on mm-hmm. you. I mean, this whole notion of like pressure to business. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, you, how do you get that same? You know, it's funny, you know, I think athletes, Maria and I and our colleagues get a bad rap about being bad business people. Mm. But I actually think that we have the greatest preparation to be really good at business if we can check our ego, if we can surround ourselves with better people than us that have complementary set of skills, um, that have an aligned vision, but the work ethic, the passion, not punching a clock from nine to five, we're just going to do it the job is done, even if we have to work around the clock. Yeah. That is something that I always underscore because most people really are, and it's okay, they're not willing to pay that price. So we have a tremendous track record. We're persistent, we're we're resilient. Uh, And here's the biggest thing I think in business is we understand how to deal with turbulence. Yeah. In Mm -hmm. public noise. And, And that, I think Jason is one thing that a lot of people can give great advice but when there's a bad article about them, I mean, they they literally melt in the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are some some significant stats about Fortune 500 female CEOs. Eighty percent of them have had high intensity sport background, mm, whether right. it's in college, high school, league level. Why is that? Because of the amazing lessons that you learn along the way, mm-hmm. right? The resiliency. What do you do under pressure? How do you cope with it? How do you take care of your body? I mean, like when you have a big event, like it's easy for me now to say, oh, I can go and have dinner and have a big curry. But actually, if I really want to be prepared and for my mind to be fresh, I'm going to have a lean dinner because I want to wake up and I want my mind to be ready to go. So strong body, strong mind. And those are so many of the lessons that you learn as an athlete. I want to ask one question because I'm sincerely intrigued by, by your answer here. You know, you talked about, you know, coming with your father, mom had to stay back, checking in IMG in the middle of the night, motel, and then Wimbledon happens at 17 uh, and your world starts changing from a global place. Now you're in your mid-30s, right? And you have a little one at home. What is your North Star when you're 45, 50? Your next, this, this business career is going to be much longer than your playing career, mm. you know, God willing. What is a Wimbledon North Star look like for you in business? Yeah. Well, I don't look so far ahead. I don't look at 45. I don't look at 50. The biggest difference and and the biggest shift in my life is when you have a child, the free time changes. Even when I was at the top of my sporting career, I had free time to recover, right? To rest my body, to be curious about other things. Now as a mother, if I can be honest, when even if you do have free time or you're not in the same city, you're on a trip, you know, a working trip, vacation, whatever it is, your child is not there. You're thinking of your child. You're doing everything you can. So 
That juggle has definitely been an adjustment for me. Business-wise, there's a, a platform that I'm working on and developing that will take time. But as I said, I'm not in a rush. And I, I recognize, I realize that everything that I've built for my tennis career was built upon years and years of work and ups and downs. And it will in my business career. But I'm, I'm curious. I'm not afraid to take chances. I'm not afraid to take on roles that might be intimidating. I mean, I'm, I'm on the board of Montclair and I sit, you know, in an Italian conference room with a translator in my ear because it's a, it's a officially public trading Italian company. So it has to be done in Italian. It's intimidating. I mean, some of the figures, the numbers, the decisions that you are responsible for in that room are, you know, are high stakes. And so I feel like I have a responsibility to know what the hell's going on in that room. And right. so by doing that, by putting myself in that situation, you know, gives me a, I'm a little scared. It's new, but I have to prepare for it. And I love that work. Maria, I've heard you talk about strategy and vision. And I think we share that in as athletes, we do always have to have a strategy and a vision. When I thought about life after baseball, one of my North Stars that I would be embarrassed to tell people, because you're probably not going to get there, right? Your North Star or something is hard to share. It was team ownership, right? And I'm having so much fun with the Timberwolves. And now my North Star is to bring a world championship with my partner, Mark Laurie, mm -hmm. to Minnesota. Any ambitions, and I see more women now, which is so yeah. exciting, are getting involved in team ownership, WNBA, NBA, football, any ideas in the yeah. future that you would like to be involved? It's a hot topic. And if I can be completely honest, I'm not someone that is oriented. My business decisions aren't oriented on what's hot and what's trendy. There's a lot of talk about being, you know, a co-owner of a league. I mean, whether it's pickleball or right. or padel or, you know, a female soccer team. I do come from individual sport background. And so I do believe in the power of, of an individual and raising and bringing the stories out of these impactful individuals. I've loved the conversations around powerful females, but I do still think they've been in the context of, of leagues and media rights and not necessarily what these athletes are about. So I see my, my involvement more in the individuals as opposed to the leagues right now. Yeah. Would be remiss if I didn't talk to you or if we didn't ask you about tennis. And I have to say, it was so cool to see a different side of you in Breakpoint, you know, as sort of a luminary of the sport. Kind I mean, of, if you blinked, you'd miss me. So you <laughs> I must have no, not blinked during that no, show. I don't think so. I feel like you popped up at like <laughs> okay. very opportune times. But I did, you know, in, in part because, you know, we did get a taste of it there. I mean, I did want to ask you. I mean, tennis as a business is at this fascinating moment, it feels yeah. like, in terms of, I mean, you've been a part of and you've witnessed generations of tennis players. Mm. We are at a generational shift on yes. both the women's and the men's side. Yeah. You know, there's new investors coming into the WTA. There's talk of WTA and ATP merging. Like, yeah. a, as a business person who has more than a passing interest yeah. in the game of tennis, like, what do you see yeah. happening there? Uh the schedule and the system is still slightly broken. There's so much going on. The season is 10 months out of the year. There's several different uh, federations involved. There are the Grand Slams that are not connected to the rest of the tour. There's inequality. I mean, we could spend a whole another hour on the state of where the game is. But the bottom line is that the actual faces and the names and the characters and the athletes that are coming out from this new generation are spectacular and they're yeah. going to lead the sport. And that's what that's what excites me. And and to break point, it was actually the first tennis interview that I had done since retirement and mm. so it felt 
you know, tennis was something I I will always know, and I knew for so many years. But it was nice to have a little bit of a of a healthy distance from it. And so when I went into this in recording for Breakpoint, it like it opened up so many you know cans from my past and my present and reflection where. I felt like I could commentate on it, but yeah. I wasn't like involved and it felt so good not to be part of any of right. anything of what was going on yeah. and to share my vision. And I think that's what was reflected in, in what you saw. Yeah, I, I still don't think it was as great of a impact to what they did with Formula One. But tennis is a tricky sport to unbox. There's so many layers and, and that's what I mean by you know, the schedule, the equipment, all of these things are tricky. Their players are hurt for a lot of the season. You're not, you're at one of the biggest events, but not all the top talents playing. Like, Mm -hmm. what are the reasons? So I like to get in before I look at who's investing in what. Yeah. All right. Last question. Do you have anything else? Nope. All right. Do you have anything else you need to tell us? God, Do you have any you, questions you started, for him? You started no, with a hardball. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you asked me to introduce myself, and I was like, shit, well, this is not going to go down well, because <laughs> yeah, I wasn't prepared for What's that What's your one. question for him? Oh, when are you going to call me on your next deal? I'm going to call you. I'm going to definitely call yeah. you. I wanna, I wanna yeah, what's the deal? I want to see, you... see the Rolodex. Yeah. I want to <laughs> see what deal you guys would do together. I'm intrigued, by, a, the, I'm intrigued good, by the platform that yeah. you're building. Yeah. I want to be part of that. Okay. Wow. Real deals happening right yeah. here on Real the deal. deal. Yeah. We'll come back and announce something yeah. big. Yeah, exactly. Just make sure your business manager wires the check. Okay? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a good point. I wire okay. my own checks now. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. Lesson learned. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Maria, thank you so much. This was thank fun. Thank you. Awesome. I had a lot of fun. The Deal is a production from Bloomberg Podcasts and Bloomberg Originals. The deals hosted by Alex Rodriguez and Jason Kelly. Our producers are Victor Reyes and Lizzie Phillip. Our story editor is Siddhartha Mahanta. Our assistant producer is Stacey Wong. Blake Maples is our sound engineer. Rubab Shakir is our creative director. Art direction is from Jacqueline Kessler. Original music by Blake Maples. Casting by Dave Warren. Our editorial supervisor is David E. Rabella. Our executive producers are Sage Bauman, Jason Kelly, Adam Kamiski, Kelly LaFerriere, Ashley Honig, Trey Shallowhorn, Kyle Kramer, and Andrew Barden. Additional support from Rachel Scarmazzino, Elena Los Angeles, Vanessa Perdomo, and Anna Mazarakis. Nestor Salaya is our director of photography. Our camera operators are Danny Salaya and Jordan Keslow. Katia Vinoy is our video editor. Our assistant camera is Stephen Neal, and Eric Sanchez is our gaffer. You can also watch The Deal on Bloomberg Originals, YouTube, and Bloomberg Television. Subscribe to The Deal wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.